Mahalia and tell her, Mahalia, I need to hear the Lord's voice. And she would respond by singing on the other line the words to Precious Lord, take my hand. Here are the, here are the words to that song. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm and through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. The second stanza, when my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. My, when my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand, lest I fall. When the darkness appears and the night draws near, when the day is past and gone, at the river I stand, guide my feet, hold my hand, Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. You see, that song, it's a song for pilgrims. It's a song for those who are on a journey. It's a song uh, that in the words of my grandmother can only be truly sung by those who have been through some things. It's a song for those who are on a treacherous journey where they will need help when the road gets dangerous and the, and the terrain is hard to, to walk through. When the journey gets long, this song was meant to carry these brothers and sisters through. In a far greater way, Psalm 121 is a pilgrim song. It's a song for those who are on a journey. It's a traveler's song. It's the second of a collection of psalms called the Song of Ascent. You can see that in the the heading, Psalms 120 to 134, are songs that God's people would sing as they traveled up the hill to Jerusalem uh, in order to celebrate the various feasts and festivals that were appointed by God. And Psalm 121 sits at the heart of these traveler songs, and it uniquely characterizes this song. It's filled with imagery of those who are on a, a journey. It reminds us that life is a journey that will lead us down some dark paths, it also tells us that we cannot make it safely to our destination on our own. The psalm is tailor-made to teach you and I that God is both able to help us and keep us. In other words, God is able to help you and keep you when you are not able to help or keep yourself. I want us to look at our text under two headings this morning. I want us to see that the Lord is our helper and then secondly, that the Lord is our keeper. First, that the Lord is our helper. And then secondly, the Lord is our keeper. First, the Lord is our helper. Verse 1 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The psalm opens with a statement and a question. The statement, I lift up my eyes to the hills, is a bit mysterious. Why is the psalmist looking to the hills? One could argue for a number of different interpretations, but I think the psalmist is looking to the hills with concern. You see, Jerusalem, where they're heading to, is a place where the, the, the temple is located. The temple is where God had promised to, to meet with his people. It, it was there in the temple where God's glory would fill this place, and it would, it would signify that God is dwelling with his people. And this temple is located where Jerusalem is, in the mountains. It, it, it is to say that, that back in the day, you just didn't hop on the interstate and head up to Jerusalem. It was hard to get to. The city of Jerusalem, even to this day, is surrounded by three sides of ravines that are about 200 to 400 feet deep. There is rough terrain everywhere. There's the potential to run into wild animals. The dangers are innumerable. 
This is why the psalmist asks, from where does my help come? The psalmist, as he thinks of the journey, as his eyes are looking to the hills, as he thinks about all the dangers that lie before him, he's asking, where am I going to get help? See, this question, where does my help come from, is a question that confronts us with the painful reality that we need help. This flies in the face of our society that tells us that we are self-sufficient, that we are strong enough, that we have in ourselves the ability to overcome whatever life may throw at us. Many of us live by the creed, when you get knocked out, knocked down, you just get up again. Or another one, life is tough, but so are you. Beloved, both of those creeds are a lie. Both of these mottos are indeed hopeless because, quite frankly, you and I are not as strong as we like to think we are. And at times, life has the ability to hit us hard enough where we cannot get up and fight back. Me and my wife are big fans of the show Shark Tank. Uh, And in one episode, there was a man who was seeking to share his product uh, called Boost Oxygen. This product was supplemental oxygen that was meant to help those who were biking or perhaps climbing uh, in places of high altitude. Think of the the, the Rocky Mountains. It's meant to be used to help one breathe in moments where the altitude was so high and the air was so thin. So basically, when you were out of breath, you would breathe into this oxygen in a can and you would be able to continue your journey. Beloved, I share that to say this. There are moments in life where the altitude is too high and the air is so thin that you can hardly breathe. And in those moments, you need an oxygen that can help your soul breathe. It can be a phone call that snatches your breath away. It can be an unfavorable report at the doctor's office. It could be relational tension that just seems like it won't go away. It can be those moments where you're paralyzed with fear. It can be those moments when you are navigating through the, the crippling fog of depression. It can be you standing at the open grave of a loved one. It could be that moment where it feels as if your sin is gnawing at you again and again. And in those moments, your soul can hardly breathe and you, whether you say these words or not, are basically saying, from where does my help come? You can't help yourself. Your strength is not going to cut it. You need help. The journey is long. The, the, the dangers are innumerable. The burdens are ev- heavy and landmines are everywhere. If help is going to come, then it must come from outside of you. See, the psalmist answers his own question in verse 2. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Notice what the psalmist does not say. He doesn't say that his help comes from his resources. He doesn't say that his help comes from his relationships or even his resume. He says that his help comes from the Lord. This isn't to say that other means of help are illegitimate. You should get an education. You should see a doctor. You should work hard. You should plan wisely. You should cultivate relationships. But friends, these are merely means of help, but they are not the source of your help. There are some situations where you can't spend enough or learn enough or work hard enough or network enough to get yourself out of. The psalmist is saying that the Lord alone is qualified to give us the help that we need. 
The psalmist answers this question by invoking the covenant name of God. He says that his help comes from Yahweh. If you have your Bibles or it's probably printed before you, you notice that the name Lord is capitalized. That's, that's the covenant name of God. That's the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. The Lord, the psalmist says that his help, his help and our help comes from the one who has established a never-ending covenant with his people. You see, the psalmist is saying that the one who helps me, the one who is the source of my help, is the one who has bound himself to me and made promises to me. And the great covenant promise of the Bible is that God says that he will be our God and we will be his people. Notice that phrase, who made heaven and earth. The phrase heaven and earth is what is called a, a merism. A merism is two parts that speak of the whole. In other words, the psalmist, when he says, who made heaven and earth, is using a poetic device to say that God made everything. Beloved, what is the reason that God can help you with anything? It's because he made everything. The psalmist can look to those hills, not with fear, but with confidence, because it is God who made those hills. You see, the gods of this world can't help you for one simple fact, because they didn't create anything. If you were to ever take some time to do a word study uh, in the Bible with the word create in the Old Testament then you would find that the verb create in the Old Testament only ever has God as its subject. Nothing else in the Bible truly really creates. You see, when you and I create something, we're using materials that already exist. If you're a person in this room and perhaps you sew, then you can only create something with fabric. If you're someone in here who maybe is going to fry chicken after church, you only can create something as long as you have chicken and, 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 and flour. In other words, God is the only one who creates. Friends, what did God have to work with at the beginning of creation? What raw materials were present when God created everything? The answer, of course, is God simply spoke and all things came into existence. God created everything. The reason that the gods of other religions cannot help anyone is because they haven't made anything. They cannot help people because they were made by people. Listen to what Psalm 115 says about this. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throats. Friends, this is why our idols always let us down. They always overpromise and underdeliver. They always say that you're going to be free, but they bring us into more and more enslavement. And suffering has a unique ability to expose that, doesn't it? And when everything around you falls down and you seek to place the, the weight of your soul on your idol, it always topples over. Well, this is not the case with our God, the God of the Christian faith, the God of the Bible, the God who is triune is able to help you for one basic reason, and it's because he has made everything that no matter what happens in your lives, no matter the, the situation or the circumstance, no matter how big the problem seems to be, God is able to help us because he made it all. 
couple of years ago. There was a video that went viral of a little boy sitting at the doctor's office. And this little boy, he couldn't be more than five years old, is on the verge of tears, weeping and, 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 and crying almost uncontrollably. Uh, as he's getting his blood drawn, uh, out of nowhere he starts to say out loud for everyone to hear, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing that my God cannot do. My, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, and there's nothing that my God cannot do. It may sound silly, but this little boy, as he views the hardest thing of his life at that moment, is saying that my God is strong enough to help me through this. In other words, he is lifting his eyes to the hills, and as he sees danger, he is calling out to his God who is so big, so strong, and so mighty. He's calling out the one who made those very hills. And this brings us to an important question this morning. Where are you looking for help? When your back is against the wall, when all of your resources have failed, where do you seek to get help? If you're looking for a way to tangibly assess that question, take stock of your prayer life. You see, prayer, when you're in trouble, do you pray? Or do you trust in your own ability to, to hustle? Or do you trust in your own ingenuity? Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon, a London Baptist preacher, says this in his sermon on this text. He says, help, help comes to the saints only from above. They look elsewhere in vain. Let us lift up our eyes with hope, with expectance, desire, and confidence. Satan will endeavor to keep our eyes upon our sorrows, that we may be disquieted and discouraged, be it firmly ours to resolve that we will look out and look up, for there is good cheer for the eyes. And they that lift up their eyes to the eternal hills shall soon have their hearts lifted up also. Beloved, lift your eyes up this morning. Don't, don't look within yourself. Don't even look to others. Lift your eyes up to the God who is able to help you. This text teaches us that not only is the Lord able to help us, but it also tells us that the Lord is able to keep us. That's our second point. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our keeper. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 121 is a song. And in every good song, there is a hook. A hook is a phrase or a, a line that is meant to catch the listener's ear. It's often repeated so that when you think of the song, you think of the hook. Uh, the hook is those words that you type into Google when you don't know the actual song. You see, Psalm 121 has a hook, and the hook is that word keeper that is repeated six times in verses 3 to 8. This word keeper in its original language of Hebrew means to guard or to watch. It's used, it means to protect something. It's used in Genesis chapter 2 when God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Later, it's used to describe the priests who were called to keep the tabernacle. It's used to speak of watching over the flock of God. In number six, uh, the benediction that we will recite together, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. It's also important to note that the psalmist switches from the first person in verses one to two to the second person in verses three to eight. This is some sort of call and response. It's as if the priest is going up the mountain and asking questions and the, the congregation that's following is responding to them 
audibly. And in this call and response that is going back and forth, it teaches us something about how the Lord is our keeper in at least three ways. First, it says that the Lord is our persistent keeper. Look at verses three to four. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. A statement, he will not let your foot be moved, is a statement that promises security. It's a statement that promises stability. In the ancient Near East, there was no uh, roads that were easy to walk on. It was only the the, the rugged terrain of well-trotted paths. And as the people walked along these paths, it was extremely easy to stumble, to slip, and to fall. And if you went the wrong way, you could literally fall off the side of a mountain. What the psalmist is saying, that the journey may be dangerous, but God is able to keep you. Psalm 46 says that the mountains and the kingdoms may slip, but not the people of God. As we walk with God, he is able to keep us stabilized. Jude 24 which I think is written with this verse in mind, says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his, the throne of his presence of his great glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. It's this assurance that on the slippery journey, God is going to hold you steady. He is going to keep your feet on the path. To say that he is a persistent keeper is to say that he will never stop keeping us. This is why the psalmist says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I think the psalmist is repeating the same thing for emphasis there. He wants us to know that, that, that God is a persistent keeper because God doesn't get tired and doesn't go to sleep. Beloved, God never falls asleep at the wheel. God never gets exhausted. God never needs a nap. His protection covers us day and night. One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, or favorite stories in all of the Bible, is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, you see this this battle between the prophet Elijah and the false prophets that ruled in Israel's day. Elijah comes to these false prophets and he sets up a contest. And the rules of the contest are are simple. Whoever's God uh, devours this sacrifice is declared to be the true and living God. And first up were the false prophets. They spend all morning calling out to their God day and night and saying, uh, consume this sacrifice. And, 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 and at this point, the, the God, of course, never answers. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 27, it says this, And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Friend, those words can never be said about our God. He is never asleep. He never needs to be woken up. As one pastor says, our God works the night shift. The reason you and I can lay our head on our pillows at night, the reason you and I can sleep with all that is going on in our world is because God is not asleep. Notice those parallel phrases. He who keeps you 
he who keeps Israel. The psalmist is telling us that the God that is able to keep you as an individual is the same God that is able to keep you as a church. The, the, the God who is able to keep you is able to keep us. The psalmist is saying that the, the God is a persistent keeper for the church and for the individual Christian. It is to say that as God looks at the whole, he doesn't forget about you as an individual. How is it that this whole church is still standing and thriving? How did you make it through as a church plant through COVID when so many established churches failed? Friends, think of all that you as individuals have experienced over the last several years. How did you make it through that? How is it that despite all those things, you are sitting here on a Sunday morning? And if we can be honest, if we can tell the truth and shame the devil, some of you are wondering, how am I still a Christian? How did that happen? It's because of this, the God who keeps you is the God who keeps us. The God who keeps Israel is the God who keeps the individual Christian. The Lord is a persistent keeper, but not only is the Lord a persistent keeper, uh, the psalmist also tells us that the Lord is a present keeper. Look at verses 5 to 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the new, new moon by night. This language of the sun shall not strike you by day, or the moon shall not strike you by night, is to be understood symbolically. In the ancient Near East, it's hot. It's just like Louisiana in August. It was dangerous to be outside, unprotected, uh, under the scorching heat of the sun. The moon speaks of the dangers that could overtake you at night. It is to say that the psalmist is simply trying to communicate that nothing can strike us. It doesn't matter if it's day or night, nothing ultimately can deliver a deadly blow to the people of God. The question is why? The answer, of course, is because God is present. Notice those beautiful words in verse 5. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. This, this promise of shade is rich in meaning for those ancients who were burned by the heat of the sun. In fact, again, we don't have to imagine this. We've all been hot. We know what it's like to have the comfort of the shade. The psalmist is saying that, that God who is, the God who is high and lifted up, the God who, who, who sits high and look, looks low, draws near to protect us. He comes and stands between us and the, the sun. He comes by our side so that we can hide in his shadow. He is our shade. He is the one who protects us from the sun's dangerous rays. Beloved, God is with you on this dangerous journey. He is like a, a friend who walks beside you. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because he is with me. Can you imagine how the game changes when you know, not just intellectually, but feel in the deepest fiber of your being that God is with you in the midst of the troubles of life? That, that when you are going through it and you are at your wit's end, God has not abandoned you. One writer commenting on this thought says this, isn't it true that the presence of another person and our frightful situations can lessen our fears. Fear doesn't want a series of impersonal steps. It wants a person. 
walk in an unknown room, unknown dark place by yourself, and you are afraid. Hold someone's hand while you are in that dark place, and fear ebbs. If we are comforted by the presence of a mere human being who might be less strong and brave than ourselves, how much more will we be comforted by the sworn presence of the reigning Christ? Beloved, God draws near to you in your suffering, that in the midst of trials, he is not a distant deity, but he is one who has come near to you to protect you. The Lord is our persistent keeper, our present keeper, but lastly, he is our perpetual keeper. Look at verses 7 to 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist ends in these two verses by seeking to encapsulate all that he has just said. First, he says that the Lord will keep you from all evil. This is a declaration of the the total totality of God's ability to keep us. Notice that word all. It speaks of evil that is both seen and unseen, known and unknown. The psalmist then doubles down and he says that the Lord will keep your life. You can translate this as the Lord will preserve your soul. And then he lays it all out in verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Again, this is another merism to say that the Lord is going to keep your life. And this brings us to an, an important question to close out on. What does it mean that the Lord will keep your life? Is all of this really true for the believer? Some of you may be thinking to yourself, Demiron, does all, do all of these promises, this passage, do all of these promises really come true? Is this some type of health, wealth, and perhaps prosperity gospel? Does being a Christian mean that we get an easier life? I think the answer to all of those questions is found in that last phrase, from this time forth and forevermore. You see, the psalmist ends this psalm by speaking of the perpetual nature of God's keeping of us. In other words, the psalmist is not even thinking about Jerusalem anymore. He is looking past Jerusalem to something greater. He is thinking about God's ability to protect us both in this life and in the life to come. You see, this kind of keeping that Psalm 121 is talking about is a spiritual keeping. It's speaking of, of spiritual preservation. It's this promise that God is going to keep us again, both now and forevermore. It's this, this promise, this reassurance that God is going to protect you both in this life and in the one to come, that nothing in this life or nothing that will come later will separate you from God. And if you notice, Psalm 121 is the Old Testament's parallel to Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 39. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. I know y'all are Baptists, so y'all can talk back to me, I promise. I, I felt it. Y'all were close. All of those things are for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the helping and the keeping that Psalm 121 is speaking of. It's this promise that God will keep you and ensure that you will make it to the end. You see, the help that we need and the the, the keeping that we are promised finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we can only sing these songs because it was sang by Jesus first. You see, Jesus entered into this world to willfully embark on this journey up this mountain towards Jerusalem. And as he journeyed up the the mountain, as you read through the Gospel of John, you see that he was faced with dangers and toils and snares at all sides, and yet he faithfully walked with his God. He never complained. He never despised God. He never said that this was something that was God's fault. He never responded in a sinful way. And friends, Jesus eventually reaches Jerusalem. And outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Calvary, Jesus suffers the wrath of God for his people. But God kept and preserved his life by raising Jesus from the dead. And that same Jesus promises to all those who will come to him that he will never cast them out. Jesus is able to keep us because God himself kept him. All of the blessings of Psalm 121 only come to each one of us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd who says that I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. It is Jesus who has begun this good work in you and will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is the same Jesus who sits right now at the right hand of God the Father who is praying for you to ensure that you make it home to glory. Beloved, this is our hope. This is our foundation. It is not found in our ability to persevere to the end, but in his ability to preserve us. And every one of God's children will be brought safely home. Beloved, this is why we gather Sunday after Sunday. It's here in this space, in these moments that God has promised to to meet with us and reaffirm his promises to us. That as we hear the word of the gospel again and again, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we sing and recite prayers, it is ultimately God making promises to us and not us making promises 
to him. It is by these means, these ordinary things that we do Sunday after Sunday where God descends and takes us by the hand and brings us home. And just as the Israelites travel up this mountain to Jerusalem, with dangers everywhere, eventually falling to the side, the potential of it, you and I, too, travel to New Jerusalem, to the heavenly city. And as we walk on, we sing our own songs of Zion, and God has promised again and again that he himself will take us home, take us by the hand, and lead us home. And that's good news. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that all of these things are true. That in moments of, that we feel abandoned, uh, moments where we have this spiritual separation, anxiety, you reaffirm the promises that you have laid out in your word to us again and again. And we ask that as we journey up this mountain, as we head home to glory, that you would sustain us as you have promised to do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just stand and sing.